from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCoward here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco-Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, we'll hear the Sustainable Business Week in Review, talk to two leaders at NASA, including a space shuttle astronaut, about what the agency is doing to improve sustainability here on Spaceship Earth, and we'll hear about the brave new world of food tech. That and more Food for Thought, this week on 350. It's Friday, October 16th, 2015. Welcome to episode one of Green Biz 350, our premier edition of this weekly podcast. Each week, we're going to be bringing you the news and insight from the world of sustainable business, including various members of the Green Biz team. Joining me here today in the Green Biz studio is Associate Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going good. How do you feel about this whole new endeavor here? It's very exciting. I'm happy to have a new medium for all the interviews we run around doing like crazy. Yeah, new to us at least. It's yeah, yeah, not exactly. exactly a new medium. So in this podcast and every week, we're going to bring you stories and the stories behind the stories. We'll bring in, a, bring in the reporters and the thought leaders whose work you see every day on Green Biz. And we're going to talk about what they're seeing and learning and even play excerpts from some of their interviews, even the things that don't necessarily go in their stories. Uh, we're also going to feature interviews with some of the many people who stopped by here at 350 Francogawa Plaza, Green Biz headquarters, leaders from companies, NGOs, uh, academia, government, and others. And then we're going to bring in other members of the Green Biz team from time to time to let you in behind the scenes of our events, webcast meetings, and so much more. But first, let's begin with the Green Biz Week in Review. So each week on Green Biz 350, we're going to be taking a look at some of the key stories of the past week. Um, Lauren, what's on the front burner for this week? We actually had a great story this week from sort of an unconventional source. He's an energy attorney based up in Seattle. His name is Peter Mostow, and he's a partner with Wilson, Sincini, Goodrich, and Rosati, a big tech law firm. He wrote us a great piece about sort of how you actually get renewable energy deals done. Uh, he looked at companies like Google, Ikea, Johnson & Johnson, and sort of the evolution of this esoteric term, the power purchase agreement. I'm sure you know all about PPAs, Joel. I do. There's not only PPAs, but virtual PPAs. That's just way too complex to get into now. But this is a really interesting topic because for all of the what we hear about companies, the need for companies to step up their purchases of renewable energy, and for all the companies that we report on regularly that are, are actually doing this, the Walmarts and the Ebays and the Googles and, and, and some other companies both in and out of tech, buying renewable energy is not that easy. Uh, it's not that easy because it's still kind of nascent. There, it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, putting green energy into the grid through a wind farm or a solar farm or just panels on your roof doesn't always mean that the electricity, the electrons you're going to be pulling out of the wall when you plug something in are going to be those renewable energy uh, electro electrons. And so there's a lot of complexity here, not to mention the fact of you know, just the complexity of building a wind farm and making a 20-year commitment at a certain price and the kinds of contracts that need to be created. And so, you know, what he's getting at here is is just how do you get through that complexity? Do you, Can you talk about some of the things he said? 
Yeah, it was interesting, actually. One of the things uh, that I think would really resonate with a lot of sustainability executives trying to set goals for their companies is how a lot of time a business wants to say, this facility is powered completely with renewable energy, if it's a big factory or something. But really, when you look at the nuances of different state laws or issues with incumbent utilities, it's hard to say exactly, like Joel was saying, where the power is generated and where it's ending up. So that creates not only logistical headaches, but marketing issues, sort of broader challenges with meeting your corporate sustainability goals. And I suspect this is an area we're going to continue to hear a lot about, um, especially as laws evolve and companies get creative with their strategies. And we're seeing a number of resources uh, come up to help companies do this. We're having workshops at some of our conferences around this. But for example, uh, the World Resources Institute, WRI, Uh, recently, well, a year ago, published the Corporate Renewable Energy Buyer's Principles. Uh, This was put together by 43 companies from Amazon and Sealed Air and Genentech and Unilever, Target, Staples, General Motors, Johnson & Johnson, and on and on, to help them uh, and help other companies as well open up opportunities for collaboration with utilities and energy suppliers to increase their ability to buy renewable energy. And then there's our good friends at the Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, uh, that have uh, created a a business renewable center uh, similarly to help, uh, and they've got companies like Autodesk and Kaiser Permanente, Sprint, uh, Salesforce, and and others that are, they're collaborating on, you know, to address this issue of how do we make renewables simpler. Yeah, there's also another important group to keep in mind, and that's the activist community. You'll see Greenpeace has been doing a big annual report called their Click Clean Report, where they're actually ranking the big name tech companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and how they stack up against each other on renewable energy for their data centers. So this isn't all happening in a vacuum. There's definite pressure for companies to figure out how to get these deals done. Great. Well, before we move on, I want to point out that All of these resources and organizations and stories that we're referring to will be uh, on our website. Uh, I'll plug this again later. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find all the resources for this episode. So what else uh, are we going to talk about from this week in review? Yeah, totally switching gears. I did a really fun Q&A with an architect named Jason Kelly Johnson. He runs an interesting design lab, not a design firm or an architecture firm. It's a design lab called the Future Cities Lab in San Francisco. And they're sort of working in this interesting space where they're trying to get way out ahead of all this hype in smart cities. They're looking at not just things like real-time building data, but what happens when you apply artificial intelligence to buildings and those sorts of things. Well, I think lab is the new word for think tank. Uh, but what, what happens when you put artificial intelligence in buildings? Yeah, well, it's interesting because they actually are a for-profit company. So they're working with builders and people that are interested in really being on the forefront of sort of smart buildings. Um, but artificial intelligence is all about having buildings that can be more adaptive and evolutionary. Those are sort of the key terms. Um, and one of the other interesting points was 
talking about how you can fit public spaces into all of this. So you have like the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco is where they have a big light installation. It picks up on the data of motion in the area and sort of turns that into LED light currents. So right now it's sort of in this blurry area between art and practically useful uh, information or installations, but I think it's a good area to watch for sure. Yeah, I mean, cities themselves are a great area to watch. We've been covering that for maybe three years uh, when we, uh, a lot of it started with uh, the Verge conference that we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. It's coming up shortly uh, in, in later in October. Um, also, this uh, report that we uh, helped put together with uh, sustainability, the, the think tank sustainability mm-hmm. called City States, a uh, couple reports in 20, I think at 12 and 2014, looking at, you know, the relationship between businesses and, and cities and why uh, sustainability needs cities just as much as cities need sustainability because cities are this proving ground for sustainability, resilience, smart technologies, and so many other things. Um, and, and this is a really interesting time to be thinking about cities. Totally. And from another perspective, too, um, as we think about all the momentum heading into COP21 in Paris, I think there's a lot of interest in how I've heard the jargony term is subnational climate actors, how cities and states like the state of California is one that's sort of on the progressive edge, how they will play a factor in these big international climate talks. Right. For our third story, Lauren, Let's talk trash. All right. That sounds great. (laughs) Uh, Specifically recycling. Uh, There was a piece in the uh, Sunday review section of the New York Times on October 3rd called The Rain, R-E-I-G-N, Rain of Recycling by John Tierney, which has been reverberating around the Internet and including the pages of of greenbiz.com over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Tierney, uh, who's a journalist who has taken on some sacred cows like recycling, in fact, he did that Back in 1996, he wrote a piece, long article for the New York Times, arguing that recycling was wasteful, ironically. Yeah, recycling is garbage, was exactly, the headline. Yeah, exactly. And he uh, sort of updated that with a, a shorter but still a lengthy piece in the New York Times on October 3rd saying that uh, this still basically is wasteful. And he's talking mostly about municipal recycling and not corporate recycling, which we can get to in a second. But as we said, this has been a, a lot of... Uh, uh, talk about this on the web. In fact, uh, Rob Kaplan, formerly of Walmart, now with the Closed Loop Fund, uh, did a great uh, annotated version of this on, on medium.com, uh, where he basically debunked uh, about 20 different points that Tierney had made. And so, uh, and then we had our own piece on GreenBiz this week uh, from our friend Conrad McCarran from the uh, activist group As You Sow. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Conrad said, Lauren. Yeah, Conrad definitely took objection to the the piece that Tierney's new piece, um, and he went and sort of tied it into the broader context of the growth we've seen in zero waste goals, where you have cities that are needing to enlist the private sector to hit these goals of ending their waste streams into landfills. Um, And one line that he had in there really struck me, um, which is Tierney sought to portray recyclers as zealots, uh, quote, the most primitive form of materialism, the worship of materials. That's what he said recycling is promoting. And I think bringing the broader issues of materials is interesting because we've been doing a ton of reporting on the circular economy, which I think really does raise some big questions about the future of recycling and how we see uh, materials put back into the supply chain. Yeah, and one of the challenges is that, uh, in fact, what Rob Kaplan and, and his colleagues 
uh, over at the Closed Loop Fund, dude, they're actually trying to increase recycling specifically with the backing of a number of big companies because these companies, Walmart and others, are saying we need more recycling because we don't have enough raw material uh, that we can use to buy. Uh, in other words, we don't have enough uh, used cardboard, used aluminum, recycled materials that we can buy to put into our processes so that we can be using more. So they believe that the way to make recycling even more cost-effective um, and efficient is to do more of it and therefore increasing the markets. Yeah, another interesting facet of that is when you look at toxic materials, like what battery manufacturers deal with. Um, and I know I've talked to a guy over at a nonprofit called Call to Recycle. Um, they're interested in how mining companies are starting to really get into this business of reclaiming toxic materials and then processing them and selling them. So I'm interested to see how not only the theoretical models evolve here, but the economics. Who's getting paid in all of this? Well, there's a topic that's pure gold. Uh, <laughs> we can be uh, uh, looking at this for a long time. In fact, we are looking at this and can, the whole circular economy topic, as you said, is really coming into its own and that a lot of big companies, including a bunch of groups convened by the World Economic Forum at Davos um, and a number of other groups convened by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, uh, there, who's put together the Circular Economy 100, this is becoming mainstream. And the recycling piece, in, in some ways, uh, we can talk probably more about this on, a, on another show. The, the circular economy actually does take recycling out of the picture in that, you know, we're actually putting things back into closed loop, uh, closed loop circles, cycles. We still need to capture a lot of this, but uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, thing. How do we th rethink recycling in an era of the circular economy? So that's it for the week in review. Now let's get to the first feature of this week. So our first feature story today, we're going to talk about space, uh, specifically how NASA, the U.S. Space Agency, has a new program to look at the technologies that they need to do long-duration, long-distance space travel, specifically trips to Mars. Now, this is part of an interview that we're going to do on stage at our upcoming Verge conference. Uh, we'll tell you more about Verge later on in this podcast. Well, I have to say, I've written a fair number of sustainability stories, but this is a new one for me. How did you even hear that NASA was working in this field? Yeah, you know, they they kind of showed up. At, at specifically, they showed up at our event in Scottsdale, Green Biz 15, uh, last February. And uh, I, I met uh, Barry Epstein, who works in that office. And I said, this is fascinating. I, exactly, kind of, why are you here? And he said, well, we're, you know, sort of trying to learn about sustainable business. And this was the best conference to come to. And I said... And I asked him why, and he explained, and I, you know, that they're they're tr they're going to be sending people out to Mars, basically, mm -hmm. and, you know, you can't pack for that. In other words, you can't if you're <laughs> traveling for a couple of years, you can't bring all the technologies and all the supplies you're going to need, you know, for energy, food, water, materials, let alone build things when you get there. So they're trying to figure out what do we need, what are the technologies that we need. And so I said, well, this is great, but you need to be at Verge because Verge is is, is going to talk about, um, you know, where technology meets sustainability. We'd love to have a conversation and we'd love for you to come and engage the Verge audience uh, about what you're doing. So at Verge, we're going to be 
uh, I'm going to be doing an interview with uh, Jason Krusen, who's the director of Advanced Exploration Systems at NASA, who's kind of heading up this program. And uh, Katie Coleman, who's an actual NASA astronaut. She's been on two space shuttle missions, and she spent not quite uh, half a year, almost 180 days, living on the International Space Station. Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm psyched about this. And so in the run-up, I ran this story uh, recently where I, I, I talked to them about this and sort of give a preview to the audience about what we're going to be talking about. And, and I started off just to get a flavor, and, and, and I hadn't talked to an astronaut before, but I've heard astronauts speak, and, you know, it doesn't take that long, as Katie Coleman did, to start waxing just poetically about what it's like to be up in space. So here's what she had to say. First, I'll just say, you know, you've probably heard it before, but I, I think most of us are changed. And it becomes just almost physically impossible to think of yourself as a citizen of just one town or city or country. It's, it's just so clear that that's the planet that you are from. And, and it's a planet we need to take care of. And that it's also a, a planet that's in the middle of a neighborhood that is also ours. You know, that it is the spaceship Earth and, and that we are destined to visit the other spaceships, you know, in that, in that universe. And, I mean, it sounds kind of pie in the sky, but it's just, it's, it's just a visceral thing, I think, to most of us. And just amazing to have that broad a view um, of the planet. In, in terms of the, the work that we do, the, the lack of gravity is, you know, there's not no gravity, but there's, there's very little and it just changes the, almost like the lens, the way we can look at a lot of different things. And, you know, clearly the problems that we have down on Earth in terms of making things sustainable are very, very, very technical. And, and they're, very, they're very hard. And so having the addition, an additional lens, an additional way to look at things, things like combustion, where there's, there's measurements that we can make uh, down here on the ground when we're looking at combustion and soot production, we have to make those measurements in less than a second. Um, and up in space, we can make those measurements over 30 or 40 seconds. So we can really understand more things and different things about how things burn and how to use fuel more efficiency, uh, efficiently and even what, what fuel can be um, by doing those, those experiments in a space environment. The same thing with liquids. Uh, I, I tell people that, you know, we get to see what liquids really want to do. I, down here on, on Earth, every single process that involves flow through a pipe, we understand a lot about the flow, the, the sort of the major part of the flow, but as soon as you look close to the walls, that's where things are hard to understand because there's tiny forces that are really very tiny compared to gravity and hard to understand. So up in space, we get to see what do liquids really want to do, and it helps us understand um, and, and do better with all of our processes on the earth that involve flow through a pipe, whether it's a sewage pipe or a factory pipe making plastic or, or anything. So the fact that things are so different and that it's such a different lens is, is something that is, becomes uh, viscerally clear to us as well. And the other thing in sort of a, um, I'd say sort of a negative way is that it, it becomes really clear that, boy, you'd better have brought everything you need with you. And as Jason referred to earlier, we need to be able to make, make things easy to repair because the unexpected is going to happen in a new environment. And so we need to have ways that we can uh, jury-rig things, modify things, make the, make the mission be successful, even if things turn out differently than we planned, because that is going to happen. 
So a lot of this work that you're doing to create technologies that will enable a long distance, long duration space flight have earthbound benefits in terms of understanding, as you were saying, you know, flows of liquids through pipes and things that can make uh, our world more efficient and presumably more sustainable. Is that correct? Did I understand that right? I think that's correct. And Jason, you might have other examples. I mean, I think about our water filtering uh, system where, you know, we, we have to recycle our water because we can't bring enough and we can't make enough. And so those same, you know, the idea of having to filter uh, filter our water and, and make it drinkable, you know, uh, is, is something that's very applicable down here on Earth. Growing our own food in a place where it's not easy to grow food, uh, the lessons that we learn, I think, come right back down here to Earth on, in terms of places where we need to grow food and it's not easy to do. Um, Jason, do you have things you want to jump in there with or Barry? Yeah, I mean, I think... Every bit of power we have is really precious, so like efficiency of power, so it's not just, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, just brute force and do things, but we have to do it very efficiently. Um, every, you're taking water, converting it to oxygen, and taking out the oxygen. We want to do that, but we want to do it in a very uh, kind of cost-efficient way, cost being power for us. And then we also want to be able to do it in a safe way. Um, so our, the way we make um, oxygen on orbit, at least on the U.S. side, we take water and we do an electrolysis and we run electricity through it and we split off the oxygen and the hydrogen. Um, hydrogen is obviously very dangerous. So, so how do we do that in a safe way that you could do this even on the ground in close proximity with people, not just astronauts, um, and be able to make excessive clean water for a lot of people? Um, so we, we think about things from a safety standpoint and from a uh, cost standpoint. We've even done little things like um, defibrillators. So we have defibrillators on orbit. Um, if we were to have a medical emergency, one of our crew members. Well, well, we actually looked, we didn't build our own defibrillator, we looked at commercial defibrillators. And what we found is um, there was actually, we can make a commercial defibrillator slightly better for our safety point of view. Um, and we ended up sharing the, what our change was back with the defibrillator industry. And lo and behold, the change we made that we needed for human spaceflight now makes their defibrillators higher, have a higher reliability here for saving life on Earth. Uh, and now they're actually, they've made that change on all the future manufacturing for defibrillators. So we tend to look at things from a different lens, as, as Katie was saying, about uh, from a power efficiency, from a safety standpoint, and, and all that. And I think um, that the, there's tons of benefits back here. The specific technology may be slightly different. Um, if you want to do something mass market across thousands, if not millions of homes or industry across the world, um, that may be a different price point than you want for uh, space. We we do a lot of environmental monitoring. Um, we have a very closed loop air monitoring environment, air environment on space station. So we want to build sensors to, to know the air quality. Well, we can design a sensor that measures 30 harmful constituent things or we could design a sensor that is basically a very fancy GC mass spec that normally would be $600,000 per copy, but now we can actually miniaturize them and put them on a silicon chip. Um, that's a real thing. And that's a real thing we're doing, by the way. <laughs> we, we have a GC mass spec that's uh, one inch by one inch that can actually be printed in uh, silicon. Um, somebody could take that and mass produce it on silicon wafers and produce it at the same price as your GPS chip in your phone. 
And can you imagine if we all had GCMS specs? What that, what would that do <laughs> um, to data and air quality in homes and all those kind of things? It wouldn't be just a carbon monoxide detector or a, a fire detector for your home. You could actually measure full air quality in your home. I think Jason makes a good point there because what he's reminding us is that it's not just a one-way street where we send technologies up to space. A lot of those come back, and if you you know, there's a page on the NASA website, uh, actually spinoff.nasa.gov, that talks about all the things that have come out of the space program that we take for granted now, like light-emitting diodes and artificial limbs and de-icing systems and. Uh, landmine removals, firefighting gear, even the memory foam in mattresses comes out of NASA. Yeah, I mean, that point is well taken that this wouldn't be the first time by any means that we're bringing technology back from space and then adapting it for Earth. But when it comes down to it, how far away from this technology are they? Um, Sort of how far are they on this journey toward long-distance space travel? Well, that's what I, I asked Jason that. And, you know, it's interesting. He basically said that it really depends on not just that, not can we go, but can we go at the efficiency and price and fuel economy that we need to do it? Uh, so when I asked him how far, give me a percentage of where we are in this, do you have 10% of what you need or 90%? Here's what he said. So, I mean, if we wanted to go to Mars tomorrow, we could. It's a matter of how much do you want to launch, though. So the space station was assembled over 30 plus launches by the space shuttle. Our next generation launch vehicle that we're developing, the SLS, will be able to launch the equivalent mass of the space station in about five launches. So we could just brute force launch a bunch of rockets. It wouldn't be very cost effective nor sustainable. Um, And we could just fly tons and tons of spares. That wouldn't be a good return on investment. NASA may do that mission once and it would be an absorbent amount of cost and we would never do it again. It, it wouldn't be a sustainable kind of human spaceflight endeavor to do it that way. So the technologies that we're investing are, are kind of lowering that barrier of how much things we have to launch and then increasing the reliability of things and the repairability of things in order to reduce how much logistics we have to fly uh, to get that, that kind of launch or mass to orbit kind of ratio, something that's reasonable that fits in our budgets that NASA has and in a time frame that uh, also kind of meets our stakeholders' expectations. Yeah. I was going to give you an example from living on the space station that hopefully Jason won't mind, um, which is that, you know, we have six people living up there, and we feel good about them living up there safely. And at the same time, the air circulation and water circulation uh, systems, I would say they break down more than once a month is, is kind of a, a guess. And, and, and then the crew is having to fix them. Now, we have backups. We have several systems. We have different kinds of systems. And so we've got the robustness there, but we've got an entire big, long, giant space station to support that robustness. And we're launching, uh, we're, we're launching spares, and we've got a team of people on the ground you know, looking at how to repair things. That's, a, that's not sustainable for a journey to Mars. And, and I agree with Jason that we could go but not in a sustainable way for that reason. And so the things that we're learning up there on the space station are how do we, we took stuff up there that made sense. It wasn't that stupid people designed it or that we took stupid stuff. It's because space is hard and it's unexpected in terms of how microgravity affects different processes. So we're learning a lot. And and this is our test bed for the journey to Mars. That's all really interesting, but I'm curious, why are they coming to Silicon Valley for Verge? 
Well, two reasons really, Lauren. One is that they want to share what they're doing. I think they're pretty excited about it. And, you know, most people don't know. They haven't really talked about this before. And I don't even know if they've ever been on stage to talk about this program. But equally, or perhaps more important, they want to challenge the Verge audience, help us with the technologies that we need. And they're going to not only talk about that on the main stage, but they're going to do a one-hour workshop along, you know, Jason and Katie, along with two of the companies they're already working with to talk about, you know, what are they working on? What do they need? And equally important, how do you engage with NASA? Yeah, it's funny. It seems like NASA sort of getting out more into the entrepreneurial community of late. Uh, just a month or two ago, I was down in Mountain View right next to the Googleplex, which is where NASA has their big Ames research facility. And they were doing sort of a similar thing. They brought in a lot of people in the aeronautics industry and also young startups that are working on drones and sort of trying to figure out how you mobilize all these technologies that are emerging related to sort of consumer space travel, if you will. Yeah, when I think that's really what this is all about is that what's going on in NASA is kind of the ultimate sustainability exercise, exercise, which is that if you can, uh, if they can sustain life with these limited resources and, uh, you know, be self-sufficient in all the ways they they need to do, um, you know, if they can recycle water and air and grow food and build things using indigenous materials wherever they go, I mean, that speaks a lot for what we'll be able to do as a species here on Spaceship Earth. Coming up, we're going to talk about food tech. But first, let's talk about what's going on at GreenBiz. this is the part of the program we're going to talk about each week what's going on at GreenBiz because there's always a lot going on at GreenBiz every day and every week. We've got webcasts, we've got podcasts, we have meetings of our GreenBiz executive network, we've got uh, people coming through the office that we think are interesting that come by for lunch and come by to talk about what's going on in their world that we're going to want to share with you here on 350. And of course we have events and right now Everything at GreenBiz is about Verge, which is coming up in about a week, 10 days from when you're listening to this. And here uh, sitting with us is uh, Verge Program Director, Elaine Shea, to tell us more about it. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Joel. So for the people who don't know, why don't you start off just the basics? What is Verge? Good question. Well, Verge is all about how technology enables systems thinking and accelerates sustainability solutions in a world that is interconnected and climate constrained. So what kind of technologies are we talking about? Well, technology is everywhere. So why don't I just start with the tracks that Verge actually is divided by. But, you know, even though everything is uh, tracked out, it's actually all interconnected. So it's we're talking about technologies and energy. So what's enabling Grid 2.0 and buildings? What's the next generation of buildings, building management and all the sites around that and infrastructure? What about transportation? There's so much really interesting technology that's happening in the t- transportation and uh, kind of not even just the urban space, but infrastructure. Then there's also supply chains, logistics, food, water, you name it. And so the word verge comes in part from convergence because what we're talking about is how all these come together. That's right. So it sounds like you could appeal to a lot of different types of people with all these tracks that are crossing into different areas. Can you talk a little bit about who's going to be in the room and who the audience is? 
Yeah, exactly. So I think the, you know, with the technologies that we're covering, um, we actually also talk about a lot of uh, the elements that deal with the decision makers. So there are a number of different transactions that have to occur in order to accelerate sustainability solutions. So we bring the people who are actually the buyers and the sellers, mostly our core audience, which is corporate. So Fortune 1000. Um, but then there's also a decent percentage, um, I would say maybe this year about a quarter, that's from government. Because obviously there are a lot of regulatory barriers and policy issues. And I think I just read an article that said that a third of cities, or sorry, a third of our carbon, um, those decisions related to, uh, to what we're going to do with our carbon is actually coming from urban areas. So those are really important. And then in addition, we have some NGOs, we have entrepreneurs and investors, and generally a lot of innovators. So you've been working on this for six, eight months. You've put this amazing program together, Elaine. What are you most excited about? There are so many things that I am excited about in this program. I actually just went through the spreadsheet and um, our program on our website. And it's been really fun because uh, we're, ha we're bringing, again, 200 plus speakers, 100 sessions. Um, this year, we're doing a bunch of really fun surprises. There are going to be nine launches and announcements that are happening off of our main stage. Um, we're bringing a bunch of really cool things, and it's all being powered off of a 100% renewably powered microgrid that we build in less than 24 hours with off-the-shelf equipment. So it's going to be super fun. Um, we're bringing some big picture people like um, Van Jones and Tom Steyer, uh, NASA. Um, we're bringing Steve Jurvetson from Draper Jurvetson. Um, he is this amazing thinker in artificial intelligence. What does that have to do with sustainability? Well, you'll find out on our stage with John Markoff from the New York Times. And we're also bringing in a lot of really cool uh, kind of how do we take these sci-fi technologies and ground them in reality, like the Hyperloop. So you guys may have heard about this whole high-speed um, uh, vacuum tube enabled sci-fi kind of thing where you can get from LA to, to San Francisco in 30 minutes. Well, actually AECOM, which is a large infrastructure company, is trying to make this happen for real. And we're actually um, having a keynote conversation with this head of AECOM's um, new ventures related to this uh, contract that they have and how it's being built with the CEO of Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. Um, in addition, we're doing a number of different discussions related to um, new business models and uh, how technology is essentially enabling a lot of innovation, um, taking advantage of a lot of the inefficiencies across energy, transportation, logistics, you know, the whole thing, food, water, etc. Um, so, I mean, there's so many things. Yeah, this is actually going to be my first time attending the event, so very excited. But I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how Verge has evolved over the last few years. Well, actually, um, so in my in my experience, um, I actually started at uh, GreenBiz in 2013, but I ha wasn't actually I was an, actually an attendee of Verge since it started in 2011 as a as a roundtable invite only kind of event. It went public in 2012, but in my experience, really, we've gotten global, really global, and we've really expanded the audience. It started out initially as mostly kind of chief sustainability people, um, but because we're talking about things that are operationally uh, relevant and require 
more technical knowledge, um, and we're talking about business model disruption and true innovation that is being scaled, we have to engage a lot of people who are really doing that work in the field. And a lot of the sustainability folks care about that, but they don't necessarily have the responsibility where they can make an actual change. So we're engaging a lot of new people in this ecosystem, people who don't say green, who don't say sustainability necessarily. They're interested in security and risk mitigation and uh, climate mitigation, adaptation, interoperability, a lot of business-oriented terms, and they care about the economics and you know it has to make business sense. And so we're engaging a lot of those people now and it's just grown significantly. Joel, what do you think? Well, I think you got it pretty right there. I mean, it's when you think about back in two, 2011 when we had this first event, it was kind of audacious what we were proposing, which is that we're just, just saying that there's this convergence of energy, building, transportation, water, food, supply chain uh, technologies, all driven by IT, and this is the next wave of sustainability uh, solutions, particularly around climate change. And, you know, we, we believed that at the time, but we were, you know, we were just kind of saying that and hoping that people would come. And so in that first year, in that uh, first event in 2011, people were talking and they didn't really, there wasn't, they were sort of like learning a new language and year two they were starting to form sentences and beginning, you know, by year three they were having a real conversation and that's what's very cool is that we now have this great uh, ecosystem of people, as you said, corporates, utilities, cities, uh, disruptive entrepreneurs and, and other thought leaders, you know, coming together and really having a great conversation that frankly hasn't been had yet. So that's very cool. So uh, finally, Elaine, just the basics if you want to learn more. When is it, by the way? It's coming right up. It's October 26th through 29th this year in San Jose. And where do you go to learn more? Go to greenbiz.com slash verge. Awesome. Elaine Shea, Program Director for Verge. Thanks so much. Thanks. Next up, the subject is food tech. Now I have to say that that was a term that I hadn't heard uh, maybe a year ago, and all of a sudden we're hearing a lot more about food and technology and how that those two worlds come together. Um, and uh, in fact, we're making that one of the tracks uh, at our upcoming Verge Conference, which we've been plugging relentlessly in this <laughs> podcast. Um, but Lauren, you've written some stories both about big companies, but also about the, not just the incumbents, but also the disruptors, the insurgents, as we call them, coming into the food space. What's going on here? Yeah, I've been really interested in this whole area of big food meets food tech. What does that look like? What sort of technologies are involved? And a lot of the activity seems to be revolving around uh, precision agriculture technologies where you're looking really closely at the water inputs or the energy inputs that you're using to produce food. Uh, and then you get into sort of the really crazy realms where you've got people doing hydroponics and shipping containers right in the middle of big cities and all kinds of interesting models. So to really put this all in context, I spoke to Will Rosenzweig recently, who's actually the founder of the Food Business School at the Culinary Institute of America. That's a new venture. Uh, Will's a really interesting guy. I've known Will for uh, almost uh, 20 years, and and just a little of his background. You know, he co-founded uh, in 1990 the company called the Republic of Tea, one of his first endeavors in food business. But went on work at uh, uh, at uh, Odwalla and uh, during a critical time there, 
and um, has been teaching entrepreneurship at Berkeley and, and uh, he's sort of a good curator. Uh, he, he actually produced TED to the second TED conference uh, back in uh, 1990. And so he's really good at, at taking ideas, building a, a sort of thought leadership around them and then building companies. Yeah, definitely. And funnily enough, when I talked to him, he was actually in the car driving down to speak to the California Grocers Association in Palm Springs on exactly this whole topic of food innovation and how you really make sense of it all. And for him, sort of the key drivers here really revolved around three sort of macro trends, looking at the broader digitization of industry, along with the money that's now flowing into food technology, and really the business talent that's sort of interested in the next wave of sustainable food systems. So here's what he had to say about all of that. There's so much interest in just the broad digitization of everything in our society. And food seems to have a calling now for uh, VC. You know, I mean, a lot of new VC money is taking risks in food that otherwise, you know, accessible a few years ago. Money from the kind of clean tech sector, money from the biotech sector, and money from the big data sector or software sectors has kind of moved in to food. That's really interesting. And then I think the last thing from my perspective that is fascinating is just how talent is migrating into food. Um, I'm teaching a class this year called Food Venture Lab. It's for MBA students. And um, it has 63 people in it, which is almost unheard of. It's just as a sign of the time, 10, 15 years ago, people went to business school to go become a management consultant or a corporate executive or an investment banker. Or, you know, now so much interest is going towards food. And I, I, I chalk that up to, you know, first of all, food is just in everybody's mind and stomach now. Um, kind of a national obsession and it's also a place where the notions of sort of doing well and doing good um, can manifest and it seems like more and more particularly business school students are very interested in applying themselves in sectors where there's that chance for to be kind of a conscious you know capitalist or whatever the means that people are using now that you know, for people to be able to apply themselves and create more than just profits, but actually improve society. So it's not just the entrepreneurs. One of the things that's interesting, we've been writing a lot of stories about bigger companies, big global companies that are looking at innovations in sustainable food technologies. And I think a lot of this is driven by the big retailers, the Walmarts and Costco's and in the UK, Tesco and others that are starting, have been leaning on their supply chains to reduce a lot of the inputs and toxicity and, and the environmental impacts of all of that. And so that's been driving the General Mills and the General Foods and the Kellogg's and the Campbell's and a bunch Dole's and a bunch of other companies to start rethinking that. Yeah, I mean, I even saw that the yogurt company Chobani has launched an incubator. So I think this really <laughs> does, yeah, it, it really does sort of ripple throughout the food industry. Uh, it's all Greek to me. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and yeah, another one we wrote about was Mars, obviously 
big, big food company. They're doing a lot of interesting stuff with food genomics and sort of um, trying to, to weed out the, the diseases or health concerns you could find. But one of my favorite interviews that I've done recently in this space was with Steve Paget, who oversees investment in R&D for Monsanto. Monsanto, really? So that's the As company in that, yeah. One of the poster children for industrialized food. And I guess this maybe isn't so surprising to some people, but they've been out ahead of the, the whole food tech space. They've had an investment fund around, uh, it's called the Monsanto Growth Fund, since 2012. Um, and they've been both acquiring companies and looking to invest in a range of technologies. So I talked to Steve a little bit about that a few weeks ago, and here's what he had to say. There's more technology than ever before that's being pointed towards agriculture. And you know, whether you call it the digital revolution in agricultural or digital ag, you know, there's a lot of new technology in the IT, computer, decision science space, Internet of Things space, that sensor space that's being pointed towards agriculture. When, you know, in the past, I think those uh, folks that were innovating in those areas really you know, weren't thinking that much about agriculture. So there's a lot of need for the new technology, and there's a lot of technology being pointed towards ag. And so, you know, for Montana, you know, our, our main two new growth platforms are Precision Ag, which you referenced, and that's really, you know, built around our acquisition of the Climate Corporation two years ago. And mm -hmm. on the biological side, it's anchored by our uh, strategic alliance with Novozymes out of Denmark in, in the microbial space. You know, relative to your question on, on the fund, uh, or the growth ventures team itself, you know, w one thing that you, you can think about is that, you know, Monsanto prior to, I think it was 2002 when we IPO, we were really an integrated pharmaceutical, uh, agriculture, and, and nutrition company. And when we IPO'd, we turned into a 100% ag company. And what most people don't realize is that there's a lot of technology, you know, in agriculture that comes from the pharmaceutical base. So when we weren't a pharma company anymore, and I was running our biotechnology division, you know, I had to look hard outside of Monsanto for technology, you know, especially coming from the pharma side. So we were used to this because we always have been collaboration focused, but I started uh, a sponsoring investment in venture capital funds probably around 2006 to get a glimpse of the deal flow that, that the pharma uh, venture funds were seeing. And, you know, we had a low hit rate, as you would expect, but it was interesting enough that as time went on, we decided that we really needed to be one step closer to the entrepreneur, to the innovator uh, uh, out there uh, in, in the venture space. And so that's when I made the decision to move out of leading the biotechnology area to start the venture capital team in 2011. So it was really about, you know, accessing the technology for our, uh, for the pipeline of products. And it was really, you know, getting closer to the, the actual entrepreneurs, which of course, when you invest in a fund, you know, you're, you're one step away from those entrepreneurial conversations. There have been a few conversations I've had with founders where I do pick up some anxiety about maybe somehow limiting their options by working with one company. Um, is that something that, that you have encountered, or do you think that hurdle can be sort of overcome? Yes and yes. I have encountered that, and yes, I think the hurdle can be overcome. I think that, you know, for the founders and the board, it's that it's an analysis of how much can a strategic investor help the company uh, by both technology, uh, 
by by knowledge of the market, by potential you know exit options, versus is the company going to be you know unduly influenced by the uh, uh, by a strategic in a way that might not be best for the company? I, I would say what I'm seeing right now more is a lot more acceptance than resistance for uh, corporate VCs. Uh, we're getting a lot of inbound interest. That's really interesting. I, you know, it syncs with what uh, we had uh, Rob Fraley, who's the CTO of Monsanto, on stage at our Verge conference last year in 2014. And it was interesting to see the number of things they're doing that are not about genetically modified organisms. So, you know, for example, Lauren, you know those little bags of bell peppers, red, I think they're red, and they may even come in yellow in a bunch of different colors, and they come like eight or ten to a bag. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, well, so that's uh, that's not made by Monsanto. They're made by other companies. They're grown by other companies, but that's based on some rapid hybridization and, and, and other kinds of genomics, non-GMO kinds of technologies that they're using to create what I don't, I'm sure they don't call it, but I'll call it designer fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And we're probably all eating a bunch of those things without even knowing it. And again, Monsanto doesn't make those, but they're actually looking at a number of these things. And I, I, what I don't know is how much of this is, is how big this is for their business. If it's 95% GMOs and little 5% other stuff, I, I actually don't know the answer. And, but I, I suspect it's, it's, if only, uh, for a good defense, but also because there's huge business opportunities, a growing part of their business. Yeah, definitely. They haven't disclosed the total value of this growth fund in food technology. So it'll be interesting to see if they make any other sort of big dollar sign acquisitions or anything like that. Um, but definitely an area to watch across the board. So before we leave you, we're going to bring in our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel, to tell us what's coming up on GreenBiz. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Um, you can watch for an interview with Van Jones, former White House official and co-host of CNN's Crossfire. In addition, we'll have a piece by Bob Langert, editor-at-large here. He was a former McDonald's sustainability star who was there for about three decades, and he takes a controversial stance on GMOs. He's saying that the same percentage of scientists believe GMOs are safe as believe climate change is real, but environmentalists choose to believe one and not the other. So watch for that. I'll also be talking with David Katz, the CEO of the Plastic Bank, which is a really interesting startup that is trying to take an approach to cleaning up some of the plastic pollution in the oceans. Um, he is trying to empower people around the world in developing regions to collect plastic garbage that washes up on the shores and turn it into products such as say cell phone cases, it could be 3D printed, and it's a really innovative take on a really big problem. Great, thanks Elsa. Well, that's almost a wrap for this maiden voyage of Green Biz 350 podcast. Lauren, before we head out, what else should we be looking forward to? Well, on October 21st, we've got a Twitter chat coming up that's looking at how the IT industry is accelerating the transformation to renewable energy. And then on November 3rd, we'll be looking at green infrastructure in the triple bottom line, new tech for sustainable city design. That will be a free webcast. You can find out more about both of those and all of our events that are coming up by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab.
Thanks, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to organizations, stories, and events mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. I want to thank Saria Melkonian for providing technical direction for this broadcast. We'd also love to hear your comments. Send us your feedback and any compliments to 350 at greenbiz.com. And for the latest news, insights, and resources on sustainable business, don't forget to visit greenbiz.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter called Green Buzz. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.